We are going to take a little foray into the book of Ruth again. And uh, hope you guys, hopefully you guys are still with me on that. Last week's sermon, Ben uh, was outstanding, uh, and I really, really enjoyed that. Gave you guys a little bit of a break from the book of Ruth, but we're turning back there today. And the, uh, the sermon series is all about the, uh, the build-up to Messiah. And uh, the sermon series is called They Asked for a King. And um, we are taking a look at the, at the way that the expectation for Messiah was shaped and how it grew in the Hebrew faith leading up to uh, King David and uh, who, who would ultimately be his son, the one who would, who would build the temple of God. Not Solomon, but, but the eternal son of David, uh, Jesus, who is, of course, known to us as the son of David, and, and, uh, and how that expectation came about. So the reason for this is very important, I think. It's, it's good for us to know what, what our expectations of Messiah are as well. It does shape, believe it or not, shapes the way we see the structure of God's church. It shapes the way we even build our politics. I think it shapes the way we build the very uh, fabric of our homes. And uh, the, uh, the expectation of Messiah, what that looks like, needs to be clarified uh, in our hearts and in our minds because I think for many, many hundreds of years, maybe even millennia, the expectation of Messiah has been confusing for many. So I wanted to read you uh, from the book of Ruth, and, uh, and I am going to... Uh, I'm going to read part of chapter 2, and uh, we had read <coughs> and spoken a little bit about halfway through chapter 2 last time, so I'm going to read some scripture for you, starting in, in verse, uh, what is this, verse 8, yeah, my eyes are failing me there for a minute, these words are getting smaller and smaller, I don't know how that's happening, Jason, it's like the Bible is shrinking on me. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days, if you see me up here with spectacles on, then you know. Then you know. Anyway, for the time being, I can still read. I just can't read the verse numbers anymore. So I think it's verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your, hus of, of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and she passed, he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests. And she lived 
with her mother-in-law. Well, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic story in all regards. This is really profound stuff, and I've had a, I've had the pleasure of reading many commentaries over the last month and a half or two months since we started talking about this. Many, many different commentaries. I can't help myself, by the way. I keep, I keep buying these things. It's a confession that I'm making. I keep buying these, these commentaries on the book of Ruth because I find one and I love it and then I find another and I love it again. And I've been reading the same thing over and over and over. Uh, but each time I read through these things, I find more in there that I didn't see before. So today I want to share with you a couple of important ideas out of this passage, but also out of the entire book of Ruth and some things that are going to be maybe um, some pointers as to how to read the scripture. Um, the, uh, I, I want to share with you some, some pointers on how to read the scripture for all it's worth and uh, how to dig deeper than you've dug before, how to see things in there that point towards other things and, uh, and to hear the echoes of this and that in the scripture that will make your reading a whole lot more rich. So on one hand, that's, that's something that I actively want to give to you today. It's a, almost like a, little, it's like a little Bible school session on how to read the Bible. Okay, is that okay? You guys all right if I do that? That's one part. The second part is I want to show you things about this, about this passage that point towards the nature of our Messiah. Uh, because that's the, the, the idea behind all of this sermon series, is to find out what is the nature uh, and the character of Messiah. What should we be looking for in Messiah? Why is Jesus our Messiah? Why is Jesus eligible to take that place when he has been summarily rejected by the Jews? So why do we Christians believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah? That's important, and I want to show you some of that from the, from the book of Ruth. Um, also, what I want to do is just, is just talk about love and how beautiful love is. It's uh, Valentine's week, and love is a beautiful thing. And uh, maybe there's a little bit of romance in here that we can see that can just make our hearts a little soft. All the boys in the room are like, oh, come on. Serious. All the girls are like, yes, yes, let's go with that romance thing. I nearly wore pink today. I nearly did. But but uh wanna wanna get in touch with that romantic side just a little bit. So I don't know that we'll have time to do it all, but let's let's see what we can get. I want to read you something that I read off of a website last night. And I haven't I haven't checked out to see just how just how well respected this website is, but it's it seems to be it seemed to be quite thorough. It was a Jewish website answering frequently asked questions. It was decidedly anti-Christian. And on this Jewish website, it was on this particular page, it was the author's chief desire to show how Christians are absolutely off the mark when they recognize Jesus as Messiah. So here is the Jewish expectation of Messiah as proposed on a Jewish Frequently Asked Questions website. The Messiah will be a great political leader descended from King David. He is often referred to as Son of David. He will be well-versed in Jewish law and observant of its commandments. He will be a charismatic leader inspiring others to follow his example. He will be a great military leader who will win battles for Israel. He will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. But above all, he will be a human being, not a god, a demigod, or any other supernatural thing. And that's all based on the following passages. Passages referring to Messiah that the Jews considered to be messianic in nature or relating to the end of days, claimed as the only ones relied upon in developing the messianic concept. Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 11, chapter 42, and chapter 59, verse 20. Jeremiah 23, 30, 33, 48, verse 47, and 49, verse 39. Ezekiel 38, verse 16. Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5. Micah chapter 4. Zephaniah chapters, chapter 3, verse 9, Zechariah 14, verse 9, and Daniel 10, verse 14. I don't know if you noticed, but there was no Psalm 22. There was no Isaiah 53. Amen. Do you guys know Psalm 22? No, you don't, do you? Okay, real quick. 
just real quick, let me take you to Psalm 22 and just read one or two verses from there that maybe sound familiar to you. Psalm 22, not listed in those scriptures which help them to state that statement. That statement that I read about Messiah and what he would be and what he wouldn't be was all with direct reference. Every single statement had a direct reference to one of the scriptures that I just read to you. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Sound familiar? How about this? Dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22. Ring a bell? Verse 24, for he, was, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Messiah who hears the cry of the afflicted. They pierced my hands and feet. Isaiah 53, not listed in that list of messianic scriptures, but Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought our peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Listen, I don't have time to read through all of those, those two, just those two passages, but there are many passages which are claimed as Christian proof texts, and they're not listed in this site that claims Messiah must be human and not a god. And must be a political ruler. And by the way, according to the expectation of the Jewish people, Messiah must not die. If anyone who claims to be Messiah dies, then it is clear that they are not Messiah. Because Messiah is to be eternal. Now I say this not as a polemic against Jewish people. Not at all. But it is confusing to me that the, that the very scriptures that we read, which are Jewish scriptures, the same scriptures that give us confidence that Christ is Messiah, are read completely differently by these children of Abraham. Our brothers and sisters, our cousins, as it were, we're all offspring of Noah, and before that, the offspring of Adam. We are all sons and daughters of God. How can it be that they would miss Messiah, that they would not see that? For them, the political freedoms that Messiah would bring became of more importance than the other verses which spoke very clearly of him being an atoning sacrifice on behalf of us, that his blood must take away our sins. And the passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that point towards a Redeemer, a Messiah, well, they're overlooked because the Christian faith is abhorrent to the Jews. Well, I want to make a strong case for other scriptural references for the expectation of Messiah. And I want to use the book of Ruth as an expectation of Messiah because I think it is. I think there's enough written in here and there's enough that it points back to and enough that it points forward to that it can give us some confidence in that regard. So I want to take you first to the very, uh, the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. And in the light of the fall of Adam and Eve, I want to share with you, Genesis chapter 3, I want to share with you the first mention of the one who is coming, the one who is the promised one, the one who will be our Messiah. Listen to this. In Genesis chapter 3, God has, God has stepped into the middle of a suddenly broken world where Adam and Eve have taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the, at the uh, temptation of Satan through the serpent that, he has, that has embodied him. 
uh, Adam and Eve have fallen from God and fallen from grace, and they have, and they have spiritually died. And God speaks and pronounces over them a curse, a curse over the serpent. He speaks a curse over Adam and over Eve. And this is a harsh word, curse, but it's a harsh thing that happened. God is not saying uh, out of out of anger, out of frustration, out of misery, out of out of vindictiveness. He's not cursing as we would think in some sort of Harry Potter way. God is. God is pronouncing over these people the consequences of their action. And it's, just, it's given for us in these words which appear to be a curse, but really it's just God speaking the truth over their lives. God says, this is what will be upon you as a result of your action. And um, this curse versus blessing theme is very important. Just keep that in the back of your mind. The curse slash blessing theme occurs many times in the Old Testament and even into the New But here is the first curse. The Lord said to the serpent, verse 13, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Just a quick reference here. The serpent, uh, it may very well be that God is speaking to the actual serpent itself. It may be that the serpent is metaphorical. Uh, I couldn't tell you for certain. I'm going to take it as there's an actual serpent there, but this serpent that is made lower than creation, lower than the beasts of creation, as it were, certainly represents the accuser of the brethren and uh, represents the satanic one, it, it, the, 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 the one who comes as, uh, as the opposition to God to try and destroy God's creation. And he is made lower than creation. Although he has authority and the spirit that man has given to him, yet he is below even the humble beasts of the field. And God declares this over him. And he says, On your belly you shall go in dust, you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is not just a declaration against serpents. And hence the fear of serpents throughout all mankind and people always looking to crush a serpent's head. That is definitely not just about people and snakes. This is about the spiritual war that is taking place. And so I need you to hear that in there. When he says, he will bruise your your head and you shall bruise his heel, there is a promise here that there will come one who is the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And that becomes a theme. That's the first mention of Messiah in the scripture. God promises that one born of woman will come and he will destroy the serpent. That's it. And that has since that time been seen as a messianic uh, promise. Okay. Same breath. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See that? There is a curse over them. The serpent is going to be destroyed, although he has some authority enough to strike the heel. The woman is cursed in childbearing, in that it will be painful for her, and that her desire will be to rule over her husband, but he will rule over her, if that's perhaps what that means. Don't really know what that means. And for the man, he is cursed in his work, that the work of his hands will not produce the kind of fruit that it did before. I think we all can recognize in all these things that we have become party to this curse. Which of us have not experienced this curse to some degree? Hmm? We recognize the world is under the curse because the serpent, whose head has been crushed by Christ, is yet still to be defeated entirely. His days are numbered. We see this curse. So God says three things. Messiah is coming. 
The woman is cursed in childbirth. The man is cursed in the field. Got it? This book of Ruth is a book of redemption. It's a powerful story of redemption. It's a beautiful story of redemption. It is redemption of property, redemption of land, but it's also redemption of people. There is a, there is a strong sense of, of uh, covenant loyalty in this book. We've talked about that. Chesed, we've talked about that in a, uh, over many weeks. We've talked about the chutzpah, the, 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 the courage that these people exercise in their faith, the kind of thing that the Lord is looking for in us. And we've recognized that in the kingdom of our Messiah, he's going to be looking for these two things for sure. He's going to be looking for a culture of chesed, a culture of loyalty, of covenant loyalty. And he's going to be looking for the kind of courage that says, I'm not taking no for an answer, but I'm going to press in because I'm, I'm more invested I'm not willing to say, oh, hardship came. All right, well, I guess I'm not supposed to do this anymore. The covenant loyalty drives us to a place of commitment that says in the face of trouble, in the face of difficulty, I will not give up, but I will press into God and I will receive the blessing from the Lord. For God is my Messiah and he will break the curse of my life. The book of Ruth starts with a famine. Famine is in the Old Testament clearly linked with the curse. We read about it now where the ground doesn't produce anything but thorns and thistles for Adam and by the sweat of his brow he will eat bread. The word for bread is lechem. The story is set in Beth Lechem, Beth Lechem, the house of bread. So there's clearly a reference here to something uh, that, that has to have us thinking about the curse. If there is a famine in the land, well, all the famines that we've had in the past, there have been, been some ups and downs with these. The first famine we heard about was when Abraham was in Canaan. And there was a famine and he went down to Egypt. Remember that? And then uh, in Egypt, what happened there? Well, he, he kind of passed his wife off as his sister. And, uh, and then that turned into a little bit of brouhaha with Pharaoh and, uh, and his court. And then eventually a Abraham got his wife back again, along with some money and a female slave by the name of Hagar. And they went back and, and, the, uh, and Hagar, Hagar bore a son to Abraham named Ishmael. And uh, Ishmael's descendants... Uh, still make war against, against Isaac's descendants in the Middle East, still to this day. There was, clearly a, there was clearly something about that famine which just, ooh, it was a troubling thing, wasn't it? Then a famine happened again in the days of Isaac. And Isaac was about to go down to Egypt just like his father. Remember that? And he didn't because God said to him, don't leave the land, but I will take care of you in this place if you'll trust me. So he didn't leave the land. Then there was another famine in the days of Jacob. Don't you remember? But God had sent Joseph ahead of him. And Joseph was in Egypt and he had interpreted the, the, the dreams of Pharaoh. Remember this story? And as a result of the seven fat years and collecting during the seven fat years, when the seven, when the seven cursed years, the seven thin years came along, there was enough food in Egypt to feed the world. And Pharaoh became, became an emperor on account of Joseph. And God said to Jacob, go on down, I've made a way for you. The famine was a test, was it not? And then in the wilderness, when Moses was taking the people through to the promised land, did they not experience in their own way a famine for 40 years? Didn't they? They couldn't grow crops in the wilderness. They had to wait upon God for manna and God provided them in the wilderness in the middle of a 40-year famine, as it were. They didn't have enough water to drink, and God would provide the water for them. Famine was always a place of testing, was it not? And when God sent them into the promised land, and Moses stood them in front of, uh, in, in, there by the Jordan River, and in Deuteronomy, he read to them the promises of God. He said, these are the blessings, and these are the cursings. If you honor the Lord and do what he said, these are the blessings that will happen to you. And if you do not, then these are the curses that will happen. And amongst those curses, what? Famine. God would send famine upon the land. He would... He would close up the heavens and they wouldn't give their rain. And the earth would not give forth its fruit. The ground would become like iron or bronze. And so there was a curse involved. Is it not? So the book of Ruth starts with a famine. And does that not indicate to us on some level that this is a great test? If it's not a negative thing, if it's not a curse upon the land of Israel, it is certainly a test for the people who live there. And everybody else seems to get it right, but Eli Melech crosses over into Moab. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, and we're not given that in here, but 
I told you before, the, the, the scriptures doesn't, doesn't tell us clearly. In the Talmud, it does. In the Talmud, they make no bones about it. They say Eli Melech was wrong. But I don't trust the Talmud. I only trust the scripture. But Naomi's family certainly were struck. And Naomi blamed God for it. We know that. But into the middle of this, God begins to speak his redemptive power. And we have Naomi who holds on to her faith. Whether her husband and her sons believed or not, we don't know. But Naomi, Naomi does. And she returns back to the land of Bethlehem, Bethlehem, where she finds some solace in the fact that she has a Moabite daughter-in-law who has refused to stay behind. She has shown chutzpah. And she's there. And this, at this point in the story, we see God's beginning to work behind the scenes. And the part that I read to you today was definitely God working behind the scenes because it was by chance, or as the Bible puts it, uh, it just so happened to be that she came upon, by luck, by chance, the place where Boaz's workers were working. And it just so happened, by luck, by chance, it just so happened that Boaz came out from Bethlehem at that time to visit his workers in the field. And he saw her and he said, oh, who's, whose servant is that? That, you know, the pretty one over there. And, uh, and so, of course, we know there's no luck. There's no chance. This is God working behind the scenes, pulling it all together. So we see the hand of God at work in this. But the author of the book of Ruth does not give us God's working except in two passages in just two little passages in chapter 1 verse 6 God is, sh is is actually shown at work go ahead and take a look chapter 1 verse 6 I underlined it in black and red in my Bible so I could remember this one it says then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that God had visited his people and given them food God visited his people and gave them food this is one of only two times when God is directly credited with working in the book of Ruth. Every other thing that God does is behind the scenes. Okay. God visits his people and he gives them food. The word food there is the word lechem. I don't know why the translators of the English Standard Version wrote it as food. I don't know why they didn't just translate it the way it's translated everywhere else. Bread. But anyway, it's the same exact word that we have in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 19, when God, uh, or right around verse 19, where it says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat lechem. So God's curse on Adam, the first thing we see God do in chapter 1, verse 6 of the book of Ruth, is he begins to feed his people. God feeds his people. What do you see in that? I see the beginnings of the signs of redemption. Do you not? If the curse is upon man, and man is to eat by the sweat of his brow, and Eli Melech could not eat because even with all of his sweat there was no bread, and now he's dead, and now Naomi's crying out to God and returning to the place where God is, God begins provide. Redemption starts in chapter 1 and verse 6. Now God is accredited with one more thing in this book and it's right at the end in chapter 4 verse 13 and I know I'm getting ahead of myself because we haven't read through this yet but this is very interesting to see. In chapter 4 and verse 13 God is given another, another applause for what he's doing. Look at this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Sorry spoiler alert right there. And, she, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave her conception. It's interesting. Of course, if you think about it, she was married to Malon for 10 years and had no children. By the way, the story is so beautifully, it's so beautifully woven. The story is, you think, about Ruth, but it's actually not. It's about Naomi. But it's actually not even just about Naomi. It's about Obed, the child, and Obed's grandson, who is King David, which is where this whole thing is going. But it's not actually even about them. <laughs> because Naomi is married to Eli Melech at the beginning, and Eli Melech does not appear in any of the genealogies of David or of Christ. 
Matthew chapter 1 gives us a genealogy in which we see Boaz and Ruth. But you don't see Elimelech. As it turns out, the line that is being preserved here, even though the story is about Naomi getting a son, Obed, through Ruth, her daughter-in-law, even though this is all about Eli Melech's name being remembered, it's not actually. It's about the line of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because the king is to come through Judah. Don't you remember back in Genesis chapter, what is it, 48, 49, somewhere around there where Jacob is on his deathbed and he speaks prophetic word over his son Judah and he says, the scepter shall not depart from, from, from between him, uh, from him and uh, until uh, the one comes until Messiah comes, essentially, I, my quotations are horrible. Anyway, but you can go there and you can see this. There's a prophetic word that Judah is going to be the one through whom Messiah comes. Messiah is going to be a human being. In this uh, Jewish FAQ, has it correct? But he's not going to be only a human being. As it turns out, the, God, the Lord's got another plan as well. Nevertheless, Judah's the one through whom the, the lineage to come. And Judah nearly messes it all up because Judah has some sons. Onan, Ur, they have, Ur has a wife, he dies, his wife goes on to uh, the other brother, Onan, he, he dies, the wife is supposed to be given to the third brother, have you guys read this story? Yes. And uh, in, in Genesis 37, and then, and then Judah's like, no, 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 man, she's like the black widow, my sons marry her, they die, she's not going to get my last son, and, uh, and so she takes matters into her own hands in an act of chutzpah, by the way, which the Bible actually records in not unfavorable terms. She dresses up like a working woman, and she entices Judah on his way back from harvest or from shearing the sheep or something, and, uh, and he pays her to go into her, and she conceives, and she tricks him. Because when he goes to pay her, she's nowhere to be found. And later she's found pregnant. And then he brings her out, burn her at the stake kind of thing. Because she's a worthless woman. And she says, oh, the guy to whom this signet ring belongs and this staff, he's, he's the guy responsible for what's going on here. And it's made known to all that Judah is, in fact, that very guy. So how can he burn his daughter-in-law uh, to death because he's responsible for this act? Anyway, it turns out to be the redemption of the line of Judah. Because Perez comes through that line, and Perez becomes the line through whom King David ultimately comes. Boaz is in that line. And if you haven't noticed, Boaz is not married. And if you haven't noticed, Boaz is already old in this story. It's the whole story about Ruth and Naomi and Eli Melech is actually about Boaz's line being redeemed because Boaz is part of the line of Judah. And God's doing a much bigger thing than we could imagine. But in this passage, God gives conception. What was the curse against women? It's in childbirth, wasn't it? So what do we see here? God actively at work reversing the curse. So the first thing he's doing is he's actively reversing the curse in providing food for his people. Then he's actively reversing the curse in allowing her to be with child. The conception happens. And then as we read the genealogy, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. That's a 10-person genealogy. It follows the patterns of genealogies given in the book of Genesis. There are a whole bunch of them. But the seventh name is always the most important name in the genealogy. And in this case, it's Boaz. The whole story is about Boaz, and he's number seven in this genealogy. It's actually written into it specifically. So you'll see that this is a story about Boaz. But King David comes through this. And as you and I know from Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes through David. So what are we seeing? The one who will crush the head of the serpent. So can you see this? The book of Ruth gives us the reverse of the curse. Food, childbirth, redeemer. In reverse order from Genesis chapter 3. It's like an inclusio. 
This is powerful and profound. And I say that it is evidence in the Old Testament that this story is about messianic expectation. In fact, the Jews themselves see that. That's why they read this passage at the festival of Shavuot, which is Pentecost for us, 40, 40 day, 50 days after the end of the barley harvest or the beginning of the barley harvest. They end with the reading of this passage at, the, at that celebration because it is to be rem- it's to be remembered alongside with the reading of the law. The Jewish people also read at the time of Shavuot, the time of Pentecost, they read the law because the law was given to Moses at that time, they believe, in history. So, so they read the law and then they read the book of Ruth at that festival. Why? Because it demonstrates to us that God is working behind the scenes to bring redemption from the curse. I want to go so far as to say that the book of Ruth shows us a different kind of redeemer than the redeemer that we read from this this passage I started out with, the expectation of a political leader. I see the redeemer in the book of Ruth as being one who redeems widows, orphans, one who, who, who stands up for the poor, one who brings justice and righteousness and redemption of property, redemption of purpose, redemption of dignity. It's so much more than a political leader. If I can, let's go back to the book of Judges, which immediately precedes the book of Ruth in our, in our canon of Scripture, and I think rightfully so. And the book of Judges ends with the statement, they had no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you've read through the book of Judges, if you haven't read it, don't worry, you'll get to it very soon in your daily reading plans. But if you've read through the book of Judges, you will have noticed it was a dark time. Moses is dead, Joshua is dead, and now the people are being ruled by judges or chieftains. They're being ruled by chieftains, and there is no king. They're supposed to be ruled by Yahweh. It's a Yahwistic nation. They're supposed to be built upon the very law of Moses, supposed to be observing that. And what is the law of Moses? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is not just Jesus who says it, but actually the ancients said it too. Jesus was right in saying that. The whole law is summed up in these things. And those who live by the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law, would have been able to still have a theocratic government that was not ruled by a single man, but by elders and chieftains. Judges. Should have worked, but it didn't. And throughout the book of Judges, what do you see? You see the people fall away from God. They begin to worship their own false gods. And as a result, the enemy begins to encroach. God removes his blessing. The curse begins to manifest amongst them. Not only does famine come, but enemies come. And when the enemies come, the people groan and they cry out to God. And when they're groaning and crying out to God, God relents. He hears their cry and he gives them deliverers. And in their deliverance, you have people like Samson and Jephthah and you have Gideon, do you not? But what happens every time you have a political leader? The political leader dies And then there's a jostling for power. And in the vacuum, in the void, somebody fills that spot. And somebody unrighteous begins to bring unrighteousness back again. And what do we have? We have a demonstration that political leaders cannot bring the peace and shalom of God. Because the peace and shalom of God must be in the heart of every man. It must be in the heart of and the lives of the common people. And that's why the book of Ruth is so critically important as we develop the concept of Messiah. As we develop this concept of Messiah, it's critically important because Bethlehem is a little no-name town. It's a little shepherd's town. There's nobody and nothing special there yet. David will come from here, and on account of that, it will become famous. But prior to that, it's just any village. It's like any town. Bethlehem, the house of bread, God provides. It should be. It's, it's a generic name for your home. And your hometown. And it's in that place where real tragedy has struck, where real issues have taken place. And you've got real things going on. You've got, you've got foreigners sojourning amongst the people. What do you do with immigrants? What do you do with people around you? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do. Don't get yourself all hung up in what should happen on a large scale. Just reach out to the people around you with the love of Christ and take care of their needs. 
and stop worrying about what the long-term ramifications of that are. You are not powerful enough to handle the long-term ramifications of that. What we do need to do is be the hands and feet of Jesus to everybody around us. Okay, so there's somebody down the street who's lying out in the middle of a freezing cold night with no place to stay. And maybe they're there because of their own foolishness. Maybe they're there because of circumstances of life that they couldn't control. Maybe they should have been better. Maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they have mental health issues. Maybe they don't. I don't know. But what should we do? Should we solve the political problem? Because I tell you what, the answer that the book of Ruth gives us is not a political answer. The answer that the book of Ruth gives us is chesed. The answer that the book of Ruth gives us is the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. The answer that the book of Ruth gives us is a Messiah who's coming to undo the curse. But he does it through the faithfulness of his own people. Boaz is a man of righteousness. Do you want to learn how to make a difference in the world around you? Be a man of righteousness. Okay, Boaz is not married. He looks out upon this field. There's a lot of young women working there. He's the landowner. He's wealthy. He's an aristocrat, perhaps, or not. I don't know. It's a small village. Maybe he's just the rich guy who owns the butchery and the deli and the, and the post office. I, I don't know. So far, he hasn't been able to get, to get anybody to sign up and be his loving spouse. So I don't know. Maybe this guy's got all kinds of pent-up energy, and he could look across that field and see all those young women and take full advantage of that. You want to make a difference in the world, gentlemen? Be like Boaz, who did not even once look at this woman wrong. He did not even once take advantage of her. He did not use the situation for his own benefit. He was an immigrant, poor, who's essentially throwing herself at him because she's in his field looking to work in his fields and he could absolutely have taken advantage. And if not him, his workers could have taken advantage. What did he do? He stood up for her. He said to his men, if you touch her, ooh, I'm going to touch you. <laughs> he said to her, don't you dare go home to your mother-in-law without food. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you, eat as much as you want, sweetheart. You can have all that you want. And when you go, I'm giving you more. He took care of her needs with no Strings attached. There was no hook. What do we learn from Ruth in this? What makes for a messianic environment? What makes for a place where God can work in our hearts and actually turn our communities around? Well, she has a strong work ethic, doesn't she? She's not entitled. She goes in there and she says, I'd like to work, please, sir. And he says, well, okay. And she says, no, but I don't want to work in the way that the law allows me to work as just a poor person. I would very much like to have a job, if you don't mind, sir. And he says, well, okay. She puts herself forward, and she's willing to do this. And she works day in and day out for the entire harvest, which I'm going to guess was probably not her role as the wife of Malon. Probably not. But she was willing to work. This isn't about a gender issue. This is about a personal issue. The personal issue is just where are our hearts when it comes to work? Are we willing to do the work that is necessary to take care of ourselves so that we're not a burden on anybody else? Because the kingdom of God surely is not enhanced when we become a burden on other people. Now, you might say, hey, I'm a burden right now, and you might be feeling bad in your heart about that. Listen, it's one thing to have adverse circumstances. Naomi had that too. My heart goes out to you if you're in adverse circumstances. But in the midst of your adverse circumstances, be like Ruth and Naomi who said, no, we're going to go back and return to the Lord. We're going to return to the Lord. I don't understand God, but I'm not going to run away from him. I'm running to him. And here's what I'm going to do in that place. I'm going to work hard and I'll take what I can get. And I won't think too much about what happens after this harvest is over. You know what? It's two months of harvest. That's good enough for now. I've got a job. Let me go do that. And it's into that kind of world that the Messiah is beginning to be revealed. There's much, much more. I don't have time to talk about it all. But I do want to show you, I do want to show you one more thing. I think I've kind of dotted around the three things I was trying to tell you at the beginning that I wanted to tell you. So if you're listening, you might have got them. I'm not sure, but they're not, they're not entirely bullet points, but they are at least coming clearer. There's one last thing I want to show you. 
And that's a beautiful literary device as written into this passage. This book is so beautifully written that it even, it even holds within it literary devices. And uh, for those of you who've studied literature, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. But for those who haven't, don't check out right now. I know I'm not your English teacher. But, um, but just for the sake of discovering what's in the Bible and how to mine it for all that it's worth, here's a little trick, here's a little tool that maybe you can use that will help you to understand passages and see what the author of the passage was trying to get you to see in the first place. Chapter 1 actually has what we call a chiasm in it. A chiastic structure is a structure, a literary device, that takes ideas and then parallels them. And if you have, let's say you have ideas A, B, and C, a chiastic structure could read the, 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 that structure A, B, C, and then reverse it, C, B, A. And you would have A, B, C, C, B, A, where C, the two letters C in the middle, would become the the lamb in the sandwich, as it were, okay? Not ham because, you know, kosher, but lamb in the sandwich. That's the meat in the middle. And if you see the meat in the middle, that's the key idea, you understand? There are also other chiastic structures which go A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, where uh, the, the, they parallel each other in that way. But for this particular passage, there's a beautiful chiastic structure which goes A, B, C, D, CBA, where D is the center. I don't have the time to show it all to you, but I'll show you a couple pointers on how to, on how to see this. Take a look at chapter 1 real quick, and you'll notice verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Quickly jump to the last verse of the chapter. It says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. See that? You've got a famine and you have a harvest. These are two ideas that are in the same genre. So that's A and A. Okay, now we're going to start moving a little bit towards the middle. See if we can find the chiastic structure. Okay, carry on. It says, a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Take a look at verse 27. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab. See that? There's movement from a country to a country. That's point B. See that? Wow, isn't that amazing? Okay, let's see another one. And uh, the name of the man was Eli Melech and his wife, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two servants, Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites uh, from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, reigned there, but Eli Melech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years when both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay. So we see the names. See the names are given. You've got the names of the men, and we've got the names of the, of the daughters-in-law. Take a look at verse 19. So the two of them went on, so they came to Bethlehem. And they came to Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. There's the naming. See that? There's names, ideas. Again, these are... Ideas that match each other. If you work this chiasm all the way to the center, I don't have time now because I've already run out of time. I'm going to give you the meat. You want, you want the meat? You want to skip all the, all the other things? You can go and try and find it for yourself and see if you arrive at the same place that I do. I'm happy to say in all of my research, I did find a couple of commentators who absolutely 100% agreed with me and even wrote out the chiasm. And I was like, yes, I got it right. I felt like I got an A on my paper. You know what I'm saying? Here's the center of the sandwich, and this is the key theme in chapter 1, which makes it the key theme for the entire book. It's found in verse 11. Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? The key theme is the womb. That's the key theme. The key theme in all of this is the womb. The end of the story proves this to be true. Because at the end of the story, it's not Ruth's child, it's Naomi's child. God has opened Naomi's womb, as it were, through Ruth, who is better to her than seven sons. The key theme is, in time of calamity, is there within us a space in which God can prepare his redemption.
My friends, this is the expectation of Messiah. Messiah is the one who opens our womb. My God. I pray that as you begin to consider important things like what is church, that you don't look for a king to rule you from a pulpit with good ideas and fancy plans and flashy stuff that competes well in the community with other pastors and becomes well-known, an author of books, wealthy and well-respected. When you consider the building in which you gather, that you will not be thinking of cathedrals and how you can enhance your name and be remembered in generations to come. These things affect us. Our expectation of Messiah affects us on the most basic of levels. How we do church, how we do our own family. How we seek for our own posterity, how we strive to be successful. My God, redemption comes softly in our daily bread and the opening of our womb. What does God want to do in this world around you through the womb that he is making fruitful inside of you? How long have you been satisfied to be barren? Maybe redemption will come to our community around us when we begin to believe that our dry and barren womb can once again be brought to life. That, my friends, is the gospel. That is what Christ has come to do. That's what Messiah has come to do, to raise you to newness of life, that from your belly will flow rivers of living water. There's so much more. I've preached too long. Father, thank you for your rich and beautiful promise. Your Messiah that we look for is not a political leader, though you will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And to that we do say, come, Lord Jesus, come. But you, O oh Lord, rule and reign in our hearts and let covenant loyalty be our core. I pray for these that you would speak your blessing even as I sing the blessing over them in Jesus' name.